Peter Thomas Fornatal here. We at In The Money Media are so happy to be partnering with Maggie Wolfendale on this new podcast series. On these shows, Maggie is telling the story of the horses through the voices of the people who love them and whose lives have been changed by them. Best of all, they're being produced to benefit our friends at the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation, whose mission of saving lives, both human and equine, is so important to Maggie and so important to us at the network. To make a gift to support this show and the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation, go to trfinc.org slash offtrack. That's trfinc.org slash offtrack. The next voice you hear will be Maggie Wolfendale. Chestnut Gelding, fold March 6, 2008, in Ontario, by Langfure, out of Silent Course, by Trajectory, 31 starts, 4 firsts, 2 seconds, 4 thirds, earnings, $287,448, jockey club name, Say No More. This is his story, off track, told by Kelsey Riley. So please be joined today by Kelsey Riley, the talented and worldly international editor for the Thoroughbred Daily News, and we are here to talk about Say No More affectionately known as Morris. Kelsey, thank you so much for coming on Off Track today. Thanks so much for having me, Maggie. Kelsey, first, I like to kind of get everyone's background. Now, you're a native of Canada, and I detected the out, which I just love, Canadian accents. Um, so what? talk about your path into the world of horse racing and thoroughbreds. Yeah, so I am from Canada, that's correct, and... I uh, I was a horse crazy kid and um, just came across racing that way. I would just, you know, wanted to, to see and take in anything to do with horses. So I stumbled across racing um, and I watched the Kentucky Derby for the first time on TV and just absolutely fell in love right away with um, just the beauty and the visuals and, and the way it was depicted and just immediately, um, you know, would read anything I could um, get my hands on to do with with racing. And, and I was about um, maybe 12, 13 years old at that stage. Um, and then after a few months of this, my parents took me to Woodbine, which is about an hour from where we lived. And uh, if I wasn't already hooked at that stage, it was it was just completely over then. So um, I was in love with racing. So um, that eventually led me to um, well, uh, following racing, actually, the following season, I um, I fell in love with a horse called Wando, who was racing um, at Woodbine, and he um, ended up winning the Canadian Triple Crown and was just a was a star at Woodbine. My parents took me to the track, uh, you know, every time he ran, and um, you know, I was lucky enough down the road um, to 
get to meet um, his owner and trainer and also their um, their farm manager. And by this time, I was uh, about 15 and uh, y'all ended up developing a, a bit of a friendship with them, uh, which ended up um, leading to me going to work on their farm um, the following summer, which turned into five years of me working on their farm um, through college. And, um, and, you know, to this day, they're, they're my second family. Um, they're the most wonderful people. And, and it's, yeah, it's just a great way to, to kick off my career in this business. And who are they? Yeah. So um, the owner of, uh, of Wando and um, uh, his farm is called Schomburg Farm. And um, it's uh, about 30 minutes north of Toronto. And um, he was a man called Gus Schickadans. Yeah. And he um, he's a German man and he um, he bred and, and raced horses. He was um, he had a homebred program of, uh, you know, maybe maximum 20 mares at a time. And he uh, he was in um, the building industry, actually. But but he was a true horseman. Um, he lived on the farm, was hands-on with his horses every day, just absolutely loved it. And um, and then um, the trainer was a man called Mike Keogh at Woodbine Racetrack, um, also just a, just a fantastic person and horseman. Um, and he trained uh, all of Gus's horses, um, you know, in, in the more uh, recent years. And um, then the farm manager was uh, a man called Laurie Kenny, uh, an Irishman who um, has been with Gus's family now for, I think, something like 40 years or something like it along those lines. So, um, yeah, wonderful people. Well, it kind of leads me to asking about what from I can detect, as I was saying, I was, you know, social media stalking you um, to I'm assuming one of your favorite sires, and that's Langfuhr, um, whom Gus bred and Mike trained. Um, yes. So talk a little bit about your familiarity with Langfuhr and how that kind of uh, love affair, if you don't mind me saying that, began. Yeah, well, and um, appropriately, today is actually Langfuhr's 30th birthday, um, which is which is wonderful. He is uh He's pensioned at Lane's End Farm, um, where he stood for most of his stud career. And um, I saw him just a few months ago, and he looks absolutely fantastic. Um, so a credit to to Lane's End and, and their team out there. But uh, so Langfuhr, he raced um, much before my time uh, being involved in racing or with uh, with Gus and his program. But um, he was the sire of Wando. And um, by the time I arrived at Gus's, um, Gus's program, was really all about Langfuhr. Um, he had a lot of success breeding um, his own mares to Langfuhr, and and the the beauty of of Langfuhr as a as a stallion was that they just they did everything, and they were so tough. And Langfuhr himself was a three time uh, Grade One winning sprinter on the dirt, but his progeny they they have done it all. They've um, They've won dirt sprints like like he did. They've won on the turf. They've won over a road of ground. It, they're they're just so so much fun. And and everywhere you look, there's there's Langfears running, um, you know, well into their careers as as Say No More did. Um, he raced until he was seven. Um, so you know, it just makes them really fun to watch and follow. And and he's doing it as a broodmare sire as well. So 
And, you know, and this is a horse that also never stood for more than $30,000 in his stud career. So um, I guess in a way he did it the hard way, but, but he's, he's done so well. One of my dad's horses that he trained was a Langfear. His name was Lord Burley and he ran until he was 10 and he was just so cool. <laughs> I mean, you talk about, you know, Langfear being a sprinter, Burley ran, you know, eight to nine furlongs would drop out the back about 15 lengths and just come rolling <laughs> down the middle of the track. He was yeah. such a character, one of my favorites too. Um, and, you know, you are so well-versed and, and, Everyone, I think, that works for the TDN is is often very well versed in pedigrees. But how did your passion for pedigrees and I just you know, reading some of your articles about these international stallions, how did that evolve? Um, I suppose when I got into racing, something that sort of piqued my interest uh, early on was um, was looking at you know the winners of these big races and seeing the. The patterns in their pedigrees. Um, and then also, you know, from there imagining, um, you know, what other lines you could possibly try. Um, it's just, it's, you know, the, the kind of combination art and science behind, like, say, a mating plan that, that I've always been intrigued by. Well, say no more. Obviously, as we've pumped up Langfjord's son, <laughs> as you mentioned, of, of his. And, he was bred by um, Gus and trained by Mike Keogh as well. How did he become yours? Um, so, so say no more. And uh, and his barn name is Morris. And he, uh, so he was actually born on the farm while I was working on the farm while I was in college. And he was actually the. I was very interested in um, in the foaling. And, you know, was out there doing a lot of foaling, doing a lot of night shifts, all that kind of thing over a series of a few years. And he was actually the first horse that I ever foaled without Laurie, the farm manager, being present there. Um, so, you know, I kind of took charge of that foaling and that. So that was a big deal for me at that stage. And at the same time, he was uh, he was out of a mare called Silent Course, who was one of my favorite mares on the farm. She was a she was a pretty chestnut mare. Um, so, you know, that helped things too. So he was, he was always a favorite of mine. And, um, I also broke him as a yearling. Uh, so I was, yeah, I was the first person, first person he ever saw when he was born. And I was also the first person on his back. So, um, you know, obviously he was always special to me. And, um, I suppose he went off to the racetrack right about the same time that I went on to, um, I spent some time in Kentucky and then I did the Darley Flying Start program and did some traveling. So he was sort of off doing his career. I was off getting my career started. And um, Morris raced until he was seven. And um, then uh, Mike Keogh actually had him retrained to be his pony uh, for, for the barn at the track. Um, I think he was, he's got a very cool personality and I think he was kind of a barn favorite. So he had him retrained uh, when he was finished racing. And I think he did that job as the pony for about three years or so, three or four years. And um, so a few years ago, uh, Gus actually passed away um, at the age of 93. And I went up to Canada for the funeral. And 
after the funeral, I um, went to spend a few days at at the farm at Schomburg Farm, which is which is pretty normal for me when I go back up to Canada to visit. I'm still very close um, with these people, and um, I happened to walk into the the barn, and the horse in the very first stall in the barn was Morris. Um, he had come home um, from the racetrack for for a bit of a break, and. I just said, oh my gosh, I, ha- I hadn't actually seen him in, in many years. And I was so excited to, to see him. And, you know, knowing that, uh, that Gus had passed away and the, the racing operation, the horse operation was going to slowly be wound up. It pretty much immediately popped into my head. Maybe I could have Morris. <laughs> um, so I went home to Kentucky and kind of thought about it for about a month or so. And the next time I was talking on the phone with Lori, the farm manager, I, I said to him, hey, you know, if if you're ever looking for um, for a home for Morris, uh, you know, let me know. And he he basically said, uh, I'll have him on a van next month. <laughs> wow. So I said, OK, I said, I, I guess I've got a horse, so I better find somewhere to keep him. <laughs> Well, being in Kentucky, that couldn't have been too uh, difficult. I'm assuming, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We have. Uh, we're we're pretty spoiled for choice here. Yeah. And so what? So that was what two and a half, three years ago. That. Uh, yeah, but about three years ago. Yeah. So what was it like? I mean, it's kind of this cool relationship. You're reunited after all these years, considering you had him as a baby and worked with him as a young horse. What was it like suddenly, you know, being reunited with him as an older horse where, as you said, he had had his career and actually had a bit of a already second career. So what did you decide to kind of do with him and and explore with him? Yeah, well, first of all, I think like, you know, as soon as he got off the van here in Kentucky, I I was just like, I this is such a great decision. Um, He's just he's such a cool horse to be around. He's um, he's got a great personality. He's he's super inquisitive. Um, He always lets you know how he's feeling about things. Um, And um, but I think the main thing is, is that for me, the the time in my life that I had with Gus and Lori and Mike and um, just how how um, you know, special they are to me and how special they still are to me. Like having, having Morris here with me is, is, you know, like a, a special reminder constantly of such a special time in my life of one of the greatest periods of my life when I got to, to work for Gus. Um, and, and Gus, like Langfear, you know, like we talked about, he, he bred him and raised him and, you know, then bred most of his mares to Langfear. Like he just adored Langfear. Um, and he, I think he closely followed almost every single progeny. Like he watched the races all the time. He he always, uh, so he had a farm in, in South Carolina as well, where he spent his winters. And whenever he was driving to South Carolina, he always um, stopped into Lane's End with a giant bag of carrots and fed the entire thing to Langfear and the grooms, the grooms at Lane's End will still say that, that um, Langfear knew Mr. Shikadans, his noise when he went, or his, um, excuse me, his voice when he came into the barn. Um, so all that to say that, um, you know, that Langfear was just super special to, to Gus and Gus and, and all of the people around him were super special 
to me. And so for me to be able to, to have one of his homebred sons of Langfear to, to now take care of, I mean, it's, it's honestly just an honor to me. Well, not only does he sound like just an awesome dude that has a wonderful personality and uh, very personable, he's also very flashy, Kelsey. I mean, he's <laughs> chestnut, as you were talking about him, uh, his dam, um, with a flashy face and all the chrome that you could ask, almost a, a flaxen mane and tail, too. Yeah, yeah, she she had the flaxen uh, the mane and tail. He's... Um, He's, you know, got the typical chestnut mane and tail, but yes, the 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 pretty white face, and um, and he's got one white stocking. But but I have to be honest, I'm a sucker for for chestnuts and especially flashy chestnuts. And 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 I think it comes clearly through the dam um, too with him. But but Langfear being a, a a bay, a dark bay, could also just get these like beautiful chestnuts. Um, sometimes like Wanda was that too. Um, uh, but yes, I, I am a sucker for a flashy chestnut. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. Uh, well, also, you mentioned doing the Darley Flying Start, your class, graduate class of 2012. Did that lead you, talk a little bit about that experience, and did that lead you into your current role at, at the TDN? It did, yes. Um, so yeah, the Flying Start was uh, was an incredible two years. Um there's just you know no other way that in such a short space of time you could uh, get the exposure that you did to the you know leading industry professionals make the connections that you make see the things that you see and um and you know having traveled to England Ireland um Australia Dubai and even within um the period of the course as well we also visited France and Hong Kong um you know having those experiences having been to those places, having attended the major race meetings, having seen the stallions um, and and the horses in these countries, it serves me so well in my job now. I think, you know, you can we can obviously take in a lot these days through television and social media and whatever else, but I still don't think there's anything quite like actually being there and and seeing things um, with your own eyes. So that that yes, the the flying start was. It, absolutely incredible experience. And yes, that did lead into my uh, current job with the TDN. I actually did a work placement with the TDN while I was on the Flying Start. And um, when I finished that up, I, I had about a year of the course left, but they said, hey, give us a call when you're close to, to finishing and we'll see what we have available. So um, that's what I did. And I've been with them for almost 10 years. Oh. Uh, now, my husband, Tom Orley, he was a graduate of the Flying Start as well. And he has always, he said the exact same thing as you. Just mm -hmm. what a wonderful program that it packs in 10 years of experience into two. Um, but as you mentioned, the race meets that you get to go to all over the world. I know what his was, and that was the Melbourne Cup. What was yours? Uh, the Arc. Ah. Why is that? Uh, uh, it's just... To me, the ARC has been, um, you know, my favorite race meeting to attend worldwide. And, and I've been to it um, probably four or five times now. Um, and it's just, there's like five group one races all back to back. And it, it's just, it starts with a group one, it ends with a group one. And it's just 
nonstop, um, you know, top class horses in action. Um, you know, you're just outside of Paris. It's a, it's a beautiful race course. Um, and that's just, it, it's funny for me, that was the first big uh, meeting that we did attend as part of the Flying Star. And, and I thought, oh, you know, this is the first one, like something for me is going to co- come along to top this. And, and honestly, nothing ever did. Um, I agree with uh, Tom, that the Melbourne Cup was was incredible, and that uh, that may very well be second. But for me, it was the Arc. That's cool. I love it. Um, I have yet to to obviously go to either of those, but yeah. uh, it, it's such an amazing experience. That the the Flying Start, and for people who aren't familiar with it, how just to enlighten us, what's the process like to get onto the course? So, um, well, it. Could be very well different now. I actually, it was uh, twelve years ago that I applied, um, but I think it's you know somewhat the same. There's um, there's an application process, um, and where you you know you write a letter, sort of talking about yourself, um, and you know have a a resume or a CV and that sort of thing. And then from there, they pick a certain number of people that they want to interview. So they they come to um, you know the countries. And the farms where Darley has bases, Darley and Godolphin have bases, and they conduct their interviews there. Um, and I happened to be in Kentucky at the time. Um, so that's uh, that's where I did my interview. And, uh, you know, the interview is just really a, a conversation about, um, you know, your experiences, your goals in the industry and that sort of thing. And then there are some, uh, some written and, and various other uh, things that you do that day, sort of tests. I think, I mean, we were a good half day uh, going through the whole process. And then from there, uh, of course, they narrow it down to 12 people who are the uh, the lucky recipients of the scholarship. It, it's truly amazing. Congratulations to you for, for getting onto the course and just having an amazing, amazing experience. Something else that you did, which was quite ambitious in 2018, was the Mongol Derby. Yeah. <laughs> Think you're the only person I've ever talked to um, or uh, you know, met that has completed or even thought about doing the Mongol <laughs> Derby. Over a thousand kilometers across varying terrains of Mongolia. Just what made you want to do this in the first place? Um, it was pretty, uh, pretty unexpected and random. Um, so, so I was actually speaking to um, David Redvers, who is a um, he uh, runs a farm and uh, manages bloodstock uh, over in in England, and with um, Qatar Racing being his his main client. And uh, he had done the Mongol Derby, and he cut, he mentioned it, and I was like, oh, what's the Mongol Derby? Um, so I Googled it. And all of these, you know, um, like stories and, and videos of people's like GoPro videos from the race were coming up. And I just, I've never made, you know, maybe since the time that I fell in love with racing, that first Kentucky Derby that I watched, I've never had something just hit me the way that that did. And I said, I, I have to do this. And the funny thing was, was at the time, because I had, I had done the flying start, I had moved to Kentucky, I was kind of setting myself up like bought a home, establishing my career. I actually hadn't ridden a horse in three years. Um, and I was just like, I have to do this. <laughs> and so I, so for that application process, it's, um, 
there's a very simple application form on their website that you fill out. So I just went on and filled it out and submitted it. And um, then a guy from one of the race organizers called me one day and we just had a, a very casual chat about, uh, you know, sort of my riding background and um, kind of why I wanted to do the race and, and that sort of thing. And, and it, you know, it was just a, a fun, casual chat. And then a couple weeks later, I received an email with a link inviting me to sign up for the, for the Mongol Derby. And I went, oh my God. <laughs> and that's when you start to think, am I for real here? Like, is this, is this something I can actually do? And I sort of, I had, you know, a couple sleepless nights over it. And then I just like eventually said to myself, like, look, I'm going to be a lot more angry at myself if I don't try. So let's do it. So, um, so I accepted and I, and I signed up and then spent the next eight or nine months just training my butt off. And thankfully in the three year gap, I hadn't forgotten how to ride. So that was good. <laughs> Riding a bike. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I had to gain quite a bit of fitness back, but we got there. I am just so impressed because I, you know, I've written your, read your post. How did you make it through that um, period of time without any chafage. I mean, what is your secret? That I, I honestly cannot say I have a secret for that. I have no idea how I got that lucky because going in, I, I kind of thought this is a, this isn't a matter of if you do or you don't. It's a matter of how much you do. But it, myself and there were a couple others that that just never had that problem. And I'm very fortunate, um, and I'm very glad because. There were some people that did, and it looked horrendous. <laughs> so, uh, I I can only imagine because I've gotten some pretty good burns galloping horses, and yes, and I can you know have those heal in time. But it's <laughs> it's such. I mean, it's it, as you mentioned, you had to train. It's so physically taxing. Not mm -hmm. to mention, you ride from checkpoint to checkpoint, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you also switch horses. And these are horses you're completely unfamiliar with, and I'm sure breed you're not familiar with, too, as they're the native Mongolian horses, right? Yes, that's correct. Um, and so, and you kind of mentioned in your intro there that the race is a thousand kilometers long, um, which is about 620 miles. And every um, roughly 25 miles, there is, uh, there is a horse station that you come to. Uh, so, you're, so you're navigating station to station using a GPS. And at those stations, you, um, you switch horses. So I would ride uh, three to four horses per day. And, you know, you'd, you'd get to the station and they, there were what they called horse lines. And they, that's exactly what they were. There are these, these long ropes tied up between two posts and there would be like 20 to 30 horses just uh, tied up standing there and you had to pick which one you wanted to take um and these are like you know i i don't know how familiar the the audiences with mongolian horses but they're sort of little like um they kind of look like like fjords maybe but they're smaller um they almost look like prehistoric horses like they do Equus. yeah they really do they really yeah. do look like the Preswalski's horse or something um and and that's genuinely because these horses have evolved very little from from the original mongolian horse because they these horses live outside 
24-7, no matter the conditions. And in Mongolia, the conditions can get very brutal during the winter. Um, and, you know, they, they kind of told us that uh, because racing uh, over long distance racing is a, a big sport in Mongolia. And, you know, they even said at times they had tried to bring in like thoroughbreds or Arabians to crossbreed and speed up their horses. But the, the horses they brought in couldn't survive um, their winters. So it never really worked. So these horses are like the the original um, Mongolian horse. But but no, you just you had to pick your horse from sight and um you know, they had they had translators there. And uh, so, you know, they could if you wanted to communicate something to the herders who owned the horses, like if you if you wanted to say, I want your fastest horse or if you wanted to say, I'm looking for like a nice steady ride, they would, you know, try and help you pick something appropriate out. Um, but but yeah, you were completely un unfamiliar with the horses. And and I rode 29 different horses over seven and a half days. So. Yeah. <laughs> what was what was kind of your main go-to attribute that you cho you know went for in each of these horses? I I really don't know that I had one. I I tried I tried a few different ones over the course of the the whole week that I was riding and I'm not confident that any of them really worked all that well. I tried, you know, I had um I had one great horse early on who was he was little scrawny thing, but he could just run and, and didn't get tired. And, and he was amazing. So then, you know, I tried another little scrawny horse and he did not work out well at all. So then I sort of like went to ones with like big, strong shoulders and hips and that worked for a while and then it didn't. So I, I, I don't know. I get, I mean, like you definitely, you definitely wanted to, to look for something that, um, that looked fit of course. Um, but then an interesting strategy that I realized late on, um, because I actually got one of these horses was somebody said, if you can get the kids horses, because the kids are always out riding. And and I did get one of the kids horses, and he was awesome. <laughs> so Cool. I, you're right. I mean, the footage that is shown often of the communities and the culture in Mongolian, it's the kids, mm -hmm. uh, you know, exercising these horses and, and also just having fun with them. So, huh, that's really interesting. What was, what was the biggest challenge for you throughout? Um, and how long is it time-wise? Uh, so you have 10 days to finish. Um, I finished in seven and a half days and I was, I was about mid pack. Uh, the winners came in at about six days and everybody was in by the end of day nine for my year. Um, what was, what was your biggest challenge though that you faced over those seven and a half days? Just, um, I mean, I think overall staying mentally tough, like I think, you know, that experience taught me how far your mind can take you. Like, um, I struggled, my, my biggest physical struggle was, was with my knees, um, starting on about, the fourth day I had, I was having a lot of pain in my knees and, um, you know, I sort of on about the fifth day, I got to a point where I was kind of mentally spiraling downhill. Like I was in pain. I was starting to get worried that I was going to injure myself. I was, you know, going through all these things in my mind. And then eventually I said to myself, like, 
I went to bed that night and I said to myself, Kelsey, like you've done, you've put so much into getting here. Like if it turns out that you have to slow down a little bit because you're in pain, that's fine. Like I had gone through kind of that whole day, really not, it was the only day of the race that I really didn't enjoy myself at all. And I was like, you know, you've put so much into getting here. Like if you have to slow down a little to enjoy this experience, like that's fine. You know, just, just do that. And I, you know, kind of came to peace with that. And I woke up the next morning and like my knees, they were, they were still sore, but they were tolerable. And the, the whole rest of the time I, I felt great. And so I think you just kind of learn that your mind can go on much longer than your body can. And if your mind can go on, you know, it'll, it'll carry your body with it. Oh, congratulations for completing that. It's, it's <laughs> so amazing, but you also didn't do this in vain. You collaborated with the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation and you were actually able to raise money for Blackburn Second Chances program. How did that all come to fruition? Yeah. So I was, you know, I wanted to to ride in the race to benefit a charity, which many of the riders do. And um, I was trying to decide on a charity and I spoke to um, our, our publisher at TDN, Sue Finley, because I knew that she, um, you know, was, a, was involved with Blackburn and, and always spoke highly of that program in the past. And I said, Hey, like, what do you think about this? And, and she was really excited about it. So I went out to the, uh, Blackburn complex and met the farm manager there and, uh, spoke with some of the inmates who were in the program. And it, and I just thought, yeah, this is this is the one I want to do. It's just, it's it's a program that, you know, pretty quickly you can see the evidence of how beneficial it is to the horses, to the inmates in the program, and to the community that these programs are in, um, you know, all across the country. And um, it was it was fantastic to to get to work with. Blackburn and the people there over that, you know, almost year long duration of that fundraiser. And then I've, I've continued to, to work with them and, and volunteer with them ever since, because um, I, I just think it's such a great program. Well, thank you for that. And, and anybody that obviously our, sh- the show helps benefit the TRF and anybody who, who helps the TRF is, is always a friend and always greatly appreciated. Also, so the Mongol, the Mongol Derby, the, you know, experience that you've had around the world with, with racing and thoroughbreds, how is that all brought home by working with Morris? Like what kind of things have you applied or is Morris just kind of the escape that you just kind of in the zone, you know, busy being an editor, international editor for the TDN? Is he just kind of your escape? Yeah, um, he he absolutely is. Um, it's 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 interesting. Like with Morris, I I you know I don't show him. He we don't train for anything. We uh, I was gonna say we we just hack. But I was actually told by somebody um, at our barn, don't say just hack. Like hacking's a great thing. You know, like it's it's great for you. It's great for your horse. So so we don't just hack. We hack. <laughs> but uh, but oh, he he absolutely and and the the great thing about him is that 
he is the same horse every time I ride him and and with my schedule. And I also do um, sometimes quite a bit of traveling with my job, less obviously the last couple of years. Um, but, you know, with, with, with my job and the traveling that can be involved in it and the unpredictable schedule, I might sometimes ride him three times in a week and then I might not ride him for three months. Um, yeah. but, he, but he's the same, um, every time I ride him and, and he's a, he's a cool dude, um, you know, likes to go out and, and hack around the farm. Um, so he, yeah, he really is, um, you know, just a way for me to, to go out and, and unwind at the end of the day. Uh, that's, I think everybody needs that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> everybody yeah. who, who loves horses should be treated with an, with an off-track thoroughbred that provides that. And that's so cool that you have that in him. Um, so, Kelsey, let's talk a little bit about Morris and some of his likes and, and maybe some of his dislikes. And considering you've known him pretty much his entire life, I, I think you will provide a good insight into to <laughs> what those things may be. So what is his favorite treat? Uh, I would say it's mints. Uh, he loves mints. As soon as he hears the rapper, like a lot of horses, he just, it completely becomes animated. But he is also incredibly food motivated. So I don't think there's a lot of treats he would turn down. <laughs> Truly a gelding. Uh, <laughs> if he had a theme song, what would it be? Ooh, um, that's a tough one. Um uh, I'm going to say like anything along the lines of just like, just being a chill dude that likes to hang out, you know, <laughs> I'm like Bob Marley or something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I could picture him like sitting on the beach, just having a cocktail or something. So <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned cocktail. What if he was a person, what would his drink of choice be? Oh, um, well, now that I've said cocktail, I could actually probably just picture him like, you know, kicking up his heels with a beer or something instead. <laughs> Corona kind of guy or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, you can kind of delve back into when he was a younger horse too with this question. What's his favorite thing to do? Um, eat. <laughs> I, I like I said, he's very food motivated, and it's funny he he knows what pockets are, and especially like in the winter the first thing he does to like everybody that walks up to him is like, is check both of their pockets on their coat. (laughs) I, yeah, I love, I love a pocket horse. (laughs) Now, is there anything he doesn't like? Like, does he have any dislikes? Does he have any dislikes? Uh, Probably, but you know, I I think the thing about him is, like I said, he's very, um, he has a lot of personality and he's extremely expressive and, most of the time that expressive is is positive, but he will he'll also let you know if he's not happy about something. If you're maybe going a little too hard with the curry, he'll sort of give you a, a look or tightening the girth a little too quickly. He'll kind of give you a look, but um, in general, he's pretty easygoing. Oh, that's great. Now, you were with him as a young horse. Did you, and he was a decent racehorses too. I mean, he, he was involved in stake races and won a couple allowance races. Did you ever get to see him at the racetrack? I actually know I never saw him at the racetrack because like I said, it, uh, it coincided with me leaving on my own travels um, and heading off in my own career. So I actually never saw him um, race in person. And, um, you know, I would have watched some of his races on TV, but I was also for a lot of his racing career in, 
in places like Australia and Dubai, where it was where it was a little more difficult. Um, but uh, you know, I always you know would have got updates on him, and and actually, um, they they pulled together a few of his win photos for me. Um, actually, just recently, I I was able to get a hold of them. So so that's that's pretty nice. That's awesome. Yeah. And final question to wrap it all up. What is the biggest lesson that Morris has taught you? Oh my gosh. Um, the biggest lesson. Or just, just something, you know, that he's brought to you. Um, it kind of enlightened you. And I always find that you can learn things from these horses because they've, of any breed, they've been through so many experiences. And I think, you know, it just makes them such an intelligent breed. And sometimes I think we can relay those things back on, onto us. Yeah. Well, and I kind of touched on it earlier too, but like I said, he's like, he's so much more than just a horse to me. Like he is, he's a reminder and a, and a physical embodiment of, of that time in my life that was so special. And these people um, that are so special to me. And so, you know, like, I mentioned that my riding can be sometimes frequent, sometimes infrequent, but even when it's infrequent, like, you know, I go out and and I see him and, you know, I, I often, you know, like when I'm hacking him around, I like make sure to, to take a couple minutes and, and think about Gus and think about, you know, the other people and, and some of the, the great memories that we had. So maybe like, you know, he has taught me to like, you know, remember those things and and always remember to 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 think back and and appreciate them no matter you know even when the pace of life can be crazy it seems like you two have just really gone full circle he is the full circle of your kind of life and involvement mm. in this industry and thank you for giving him such an amazing home and life with you in Kentucky and also thank you so much for your time and everything you do uh, with the TDN with the TRF and uh, for being an awesome guest today yeah of course and and you know I just think that like all the stuff with with the TRF and, and everything, it's um, obviously it's something I enjoy doing, but, you know, also sometimes I think, you know, we just need to think about the fact of, of, of how much these, these horses give us. And, you know, it's, it's an honor just to be able to, to give something back to them. to this episode of Off Track with Kelsey Riley talking about Say No More, aka Morris, and what a story they have together. Really, Kelsey and Morris connected from the start, and it all comes full circle with their story. And two, I have to thank Kelsey as well for the money she raised for the TRF Blackburn Second Chances program. And the TRF actually just recently announced the opening of their ninth second chances program the second one uh, to the very first one in Wallkill. now the wyoming correctional facility is now open in upstate new york for incarcerated individuals to work with up to 25 retired thoroughbreds who can no longer go on to second careers and while morris is happily living his days hacking with Kelsey. Some of these horses can't even do that and they need people to take care of them. But in turn, these horses 
take care of the people in the Second Chances program run by the TRF. And as always, thank you for those who have helped the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation. And if you're looking to still help out, make sure you check out trfinc.org slash off track.